A turn in your Bibles. Hopefully you have one. If not, um, we've been saying this now since we're in this study, taking larger chunks of Scripture as we go through books of the Bible. We're in Isaiah. Um, there are Bibles in the back. You can just go up and grab one in the back. Pew Bibles. I'm going to call them Pew Bibles. We'll call them Bibles that are in the back. Uh, page 634, you'll find Isaiah chapter 5 is where we are this morning. Isaiah chapter 5, as we're moving along in this wonderful book, uh, this writing of the prophet, this mouthpiece of God, this fourth teller of the word and the will of Almighty God, Isaiah. Uh, the Apostle Paul reminds us, and as well as the Apostle Peter, tells us that Isaiah, like all those who wrote uh, Scripture, are being moved along by God, supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, driven by the Spirit, that all Scripture, all Scripture is the exhaling of God, uh, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, so that the man and the woman of God may be complete, Equipped for every good work, 2 Peter and 2 Timothy. And our series, as you know, is called Isaiah, the Gospel According to Isaiah. Um, He is the most often prophetic writer in all the New Testament, quoted in the New Testament. Isaiah is number one. Uh, Psalms is uh, quoted more than Isaiah, but he's he's the number one prophet that's quoted in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament, excuse me. So, we come to the series, we're saying, Isaiah, we have a lot to see about Jesus, so we're calling it the gospel according to Isaiah. In chapter 1, we were introduced to him. We also were learned that God is a God who speaks. He's the God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. He's the Lord, the Adonai, the Master. He's Yahweh, the covenant God. He is the Lord of hosts, the one who is sovereign and omnipotent, has the omnipotent control over all creation. And we've seen this reoccurring thing theme that God is calling his people to give account for their covenant-breaking sin. Chapters 2 through 4 is one unit, we said. Uh, We finished it up last week, but we said that chapter 2 begins and chapter 4 ends with this glorious description of the the messianic kingdom, the new restored Jerusalem. We said that's either the millennial kingdom, the literal reign of Christ on earth, thousand years, Revelation 20, or some hold that it is the end of the age where Christ will usher in his final kingdom. I mentioned two weeks ago, I'll mention it to you again. You could just Google John Piper, A Night of Eschatology, and there's a really two-hour video, a good description of what others hold to the uh, eschatological approach to the the scriptures. We saw, though, also that chapters 2 through 4 talk about the destruction of the pride of man. The pride of man. Um... The nation, uh, Chris had mentioned uh, last week as well, uh, that, that the nation was in, in, inflated with pride, and, and pride ultimately is an attack against the rightful rule of God. Pride invites God's judgment. God's not going to sit idly by while people openly defy him in their pride and defy his will and his ways. Last week we learned that not only the leaders of Judah suffer God's righteous indignation due to their pride. But we saw in chapter 3, verse 16 through 26, there was a group of socialite women, too, that, will, that were, given, uh, were called to account for their pride. But we ended last week in chapter 4, verses 2 through uh, 6, with the branch of the Lord, a clear reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as the Israelites and, and the people of God in the end of uh, uh, the Messianic age uh, kind of replaced their self-exalting pride and they took their, their, their pride in exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that. That Jesus himself, his beauty will be on display in the restored Jerusalem as he, as he comes and he, and he purifies and he, and he cleanses and he restores the new Jerusalem in the messianic kingdom. No need for human leaders the ones that were swept away by God's judgment due to their pride because the branch of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, will reign and rule in righteousness. If you have your Bibles open, again, I hope you do. Chapter 4, verse 5, we read this at the conclusion of verse 5. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of the flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. Verse 6, chapter 4. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat. And for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Notice with me 
the first few words in verse 5. Then the Lord will create. It's the work of God. It's the work of His grace. It is the work of grace as He cares for His people. He will, he will give them shelter from the elements with, with a canopy. He will comfort them. He will protect His people. The God who once manifested His presence with a cloud by day and fire by night as Israel wandered in the wilderness will touch down permanently with His people. The, the Shekinah glory will come and will, will forever be with them and blanket over them love and protection as God cares for them. As we move to chapter 5, we're going we're, we're gonna to continue to see the work of God's grace. And, and as, if you've been tracking with us, you know as we get to chapter 5, there's a lot, there, there's, a, there's a really good reason for God setting forth his judgment and wrath against a, re, a rebellious people. We've seen it over and over again. We're going to see it again. And remember, Isaiah, uh, one of the recurring themes of Isaiah is that God is holy, God is just, God is uh, angry towards sin, but yet God is loving, God is merciful, God is kind, and God is gracious and redeems his people. We know how that happens. It's through Jesus. In fact, the name Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. So we get to chapter 5, and have your Bibles open. I'm not, there's a lot of verses. They're not going to be up on the screen, so bring a Bible. If you don't have one, there's one in the back. Keep it, it's yours. And we get to chapter 5, we're going to see again the grace of God. But this time, unfortunately, we're going to see how the people of God did not recognize, did not appreciate the grace, nor were they being transformed by the grace of God. Isaiah chapter 5. Three headings as we move into the text. Number one, we're going to see the work of God, verses one through seven. Number two, we'll see the woes of God. There are six of them. In the largest section, eight through 25. And finally, the whistle of God, as God calls nations to come and discipline his children, verses 26 through 30. So, the work of God, chapter five, verse one through seven. Let me read the text to you this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Infallible, authoritative, inspired word of God. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But he yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, the men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall be pruned for, or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, and his pleasant planting, his pleasure in planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Isaiah opens up chapter 5 like a folk singer, right, singing a love song about a parable, uh, uh, about a parable, about a, a vineyard, a vineyard that God, Yahweh, has planted and one that he planted and he was rightfully expecting to receive good fruit, good grapes. The vineyard we know in verse 7 is an analogy of Israel and Judah. And when you read this parable, you, you, like when you start it out, let me sing, you, you, you're like, wow, this is going to go really good. He's singing over his beloved, like a wedding song. And then suddenly the, 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 the song, this parable, turns into what's more like a funeral dirge announcing Israel's judges, excuse me, Israel's and Judah's judgment and death. It kind of catches you off guard. Sort of like if you remember we studied First and Second Samuel together uh, a year or two back where, where, where um, the prophet Nathan comes to Daniel and says, listen, there's this little baby lamb. 
And David's caught up in the story, and at the end of the story, he's like, no, that's you. The guy that killed the lamb, that's you. And he got caught off guard. And then all of a sudden, David is just crying out, you know, I've sinned against the Lord. Isaiah sets up his hearers here as well to, to kind of, to judge themselves, to recognize their sin. And he begins by calling attention to God's grace. Let me sing for my beloved, he says. NIV, if you have an NIV, he says, I will sing for the one I love. He sings that the Lord had a vineyard. And it's not just in any old place, this vineyard. It's, it, it's placed in very good soil. It is positioned on a fertile hill. The gardener clears it and planted a choice vine, looking for luscious dark red grapes ideal for making wine. The ground of Palestine is, is rocky. And this owner is dedicated. All the care necessary to, to till the ground. Where it was hard, he dug it up, broke it up, so that the vines can be placed in good soil, turning it over, removing stones. You can see the love and the care of the gardener, the owner of the vineyard. And the lover's devotion toward this vineyard goes further. He doesn't build a, a booth, some temporary feeble structure. No, he builds a tower, a place where he, he can live and protect the vineyard from predators during harvest season. Even builds a wine vat, a wine press. And you see this, this owner, this gardener, uh, uh, choosing this particular site, giving care, love, and protection. And he had every right at that point to expect the vines that were planted in this choice location that he cared for and loved to produce the best of grapes. That's the point. That's what Isaiah wants us to see and what he's communicating to us. This work, this glorious work and activity reveals to the people of God the mercy and the grace of God. His love and care and choice of Israel, which included both Judah and the southern kingdom. We've talked about that. And he showers this blessing of grace upon his people. That's the point. That's the point then. It's the point now. God is gracious God is merciful, God is good, and God cares for his people. The choice of Israel was a matter of grace alone on the part of a merciful and kind God. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. God chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons to Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We go to chapter 2. What does it say? The famous verse everyone knows. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, right? Not, not, not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that you may not boast. And then he goes on to say, for we are his what? Poema, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It is the sole work of God. But what was the result of such a choice, of such grace, of God's love and mercy toward God's people? Look at verse 2. He looked for it at the end of verse 2, and it yielded grapes. But it, but it yielded wild grapes, excuse me. Look down at verse 4. What more was there for me to do that I have not done it? When I looked for it, it yielded grapes. Why did it yield wild grapes? He says it twice. The Hebrew word for wild literally means sour or rotten or stinky, worthless. It's not that there was no fruit. Notice that. Fruit was produced. It wasn't good fruit. The grace of God did not produce the fruit that was expected. That's why in Ephesians, God said God chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should what? Bear, bear bad fruit? No, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We love that verse. It's by grace alone. I get it. But then it says we've been created for unto good works. Grace, mercy, love, kindness, when it transforms the heart, works itself out in good fruits. It's not good fruit that produces grace. It is grace that produces fruit. That's why our second core value here at, community, at uh, King's Chapel is identity, gospel transformation. Grace is supposed to transform the heart. 
These grapes grown in God's vineyards were, un, were, were not usable. They were, they were bad. They were offensive. There's an interesting verse in 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth. And he makes this appeal to the church. He says to the church, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Anselm, a, a 11th century Italian monk, wrote this about that verse. Interesting. What does that mean? He says this, he re, to, to receive it in vain. He receives grace into a vacuum who does not work with it, who does not give it his heart, and who through sloth, laziness, makes that grace ineffectual by not doing all that he can express to it, that all that he can express it in good works, end quote. In other words, Isaiah is contrasting God's abundant grace, care, love, and mercy with the disappointing fruits that the people have been producing. They received God's grace in vain. And the owner did everything he could, he says. In verse 3, he actually calls the people, judge between me and my vineyard. And there are only two possibilities, right? There's only two possibilities. The failure, li- the failure lies either with, with the owner, the gardener, or the vine. And the verdict is obvious. The judgment is on them. Self-condemnation. They have to acknowledge that it's not the owner's fault. And they have to acknowledge that they, yes, we have bore bad fruit. The Lord has dealt with them abundantly in grace and mercy in abundance and they have rebelled against him. So the question I want to ask us, and you could, don't have to jump and raise your hand, just between you and the Lord, what have we done with the outpouring of grace in our life? What are we doing and what have we done with the outpouring of grace in our life? Why, and I include myself, why do we choose sin instead of God's grace? Maybe you're here this morning and you really just need to drink deeply of the grace of God. And maybe you need to drink deeply of the grace of God and you need to allow his mercy, his love, his kindness, his forgiveness to transform your hearts. Verses 5 and 6, we see the verdict God's going to. Not maybe, if you notice that. I will, I will, I will, I will, it says. I will personally remove its hedge of protection. It will be consumed. It will lie open and other nations will invade her. It will become a place of trampling. Though I will not send the clouds. It will not rain. It will become a wasteland. We, there's no pruning, no, no weeding. Thorns will grow up, which is a symbol of curse. We know from back in Eden. And God, as the owner, is in full control of all the elements, as you could tell, that are going to make this vineyard at some point just shrivel up. Mott, your commentary says this. This is really interesting. Because, you know, God, there were, there were nations on the earth when God chose Israel. God chose them, it chose them in, in grace alone. We'll get to that. He set his affections on them. Matyer, he's a commentary. He wrote this. I thought this was very interesting. He said, fruitlessness, or bad fruit, you would say, does not merely violate the Lord's formal intentions. It contradicts its heart, his heart. I thought that was good. It's not just God somewhere. It is a father caring for his kids. Israel was the vineyard of God. He found the light, we saw that, verse 7. He, he chose her, not because she was greater, not because she was better, obviously, but so that he and his grace could show forth his glory. And for his sake alone, he chose her. They needed to be cultivated. They needed to be tended to, to bring the desired fruit, but they bore bad fruit. And in verse 7, God declares what he sees. He wanted justice. He expected justice. He saw injustice, he expected righteousness, but there were just cries of despair. And I, and I think that we can, we, can, we can look at verse 7, I think, and, 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 and I think it's right for us to say that when God gives us his grace, when God teaches his grace, when God uh, has taught us and we receive not only his grace, but his righteousness, it should be exhibited in our life. However, Israel brought forth bloodshed, not righteousness, a cry 
against those who were oppressed. What God was looking for was right relationships, injustices being uh, made right, the wrongs being made right, and what he found was the opposite. And although people, both Israel and us today, take no credit for our election or our privileged status, it is a work of grace. And God cares for us and loves us. He tenderly cares and protects us. And God is waiting and he's patiently looking for the work of good fruit in our lives. Jesus said, every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You are recognized by them by their fruits. God's grace when, when, when it's recognized, when it is appreciated, when it's, when it's embraced and takes root in our lives, will transform our lives by his grace and we will then produce good fruit by the Spirit of God. The work of God. Now the woes of God, they're interesting, there are six of them. Six woes in verses 26 through 30, uh, 8 through 25, excuse me. Uh, Six of them, six woes, and with those six woes, there are four very important, you can underline them in your Bibles if you want, there are six woes and two sets of two therefores, verse 13, verse 14, and verse 24 and 25, six woes, therefore, therefore, woes, therefore, therefore, okay, that's what we're looking at. Now, the the woe, it's kind of sort of like a cause and effect, okay, therefore, this is what's going to happen. The woe here and the six woes not only denounces our sin, but the actual word woe comes from the culture, uh, the context of lamenting, uh, a lamenting of death, grief at a funeral. Uh, Dr. John Watts, he wrote the World Biblical Commentary, a really good commentary. So he said this, uh, it kind of explains what the word woe means. He says this, the use of woe places this series of statements when we're reading in a funeral setting as words of lament over the dead. This observation is important to translation and exegesis, understanding the text. Because these sentences are not threats concerning future judgment. Instead, they mourn the present dead and their past deeds. They mourn the announced dead of the men of Judah. End quote. Woe, lament. Warning. God's not going to ignore what they've been doing and what's going on. He will not ignore by God, and their funeral is following. The woes introduce God's denunciation of particular sins, and the therefores introduce the judgment. What's going to be done to those who are guilty? What will be done to those who are bearing bad fruit? The rotten fruit is what we're talking about and who we're talking about. We saw this earlier. This is the grace of God. God chastises those he loves. It's God disciplining his kids. Perfectly. Some of you, some of I, myself as well, Maybe you didn't have good discipline growing up. That's not this. Six sections with woes. Verses 8 through 10 is the first one. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate. Large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath. And a homer of seed shall yield but a ephod. The rich are buying houses. After houses, their property lines are growing and growing and growing, and they're squeezing out the poor. God, in his grace, if you know the story in the Old Testament, has divided the land among the tribes of Israel so that no one was left empty-handed. This helped the people of God recognize, number one, that the land is not theirs. They are good stewards of it. You see, when God covenant with his people, he made it very clear, this is my land. You are just good stewards of it. You, we're going we're gonna to give you this, for, this land as a form of a grant. And it's to remind them of who the land really belongs to. And the intention was, 
that each family would hold on to its property and that the children of God would have a place to live. But here, God's people ended up not in a community of love and care with their own plot of land. Now they're being ruled by these large estates where, where self-centered and covetous people live in isolation, it says, even alienated from their God. You know, the law in the Old Testament even provided the land, uh, the outskirts of the land that you owned was to be left not gleaned for the poor to come. Now there's no room. And you know what happens? When greed and covetousness disem- uh, happens, it disempowers grace. And you wind up empty. In verses 9 and 10, speaks of the emptiness. In fact, the Lord says in verse 9, the Lord has sworn in my hearing. Man, you know things are getting serious when the Lord swears upon himself. You're like, I'm paying attention now. He says, houses will be desolate. Those giant houses will be bare. No one's living in them anymore. If you want to go and take people's homes away from them, you know what? I'm going to take your home away from you. And these beautiful properties will produce nothing of what the crop, what what was expected from the crop. The large fields of grain and immense vineyards will produce only a fraction of what was expected. I wrote this in my notes, you know, don't you just love when that happens, right? You covet something you wanted so bad, you get it, and then it's like, yeah, it's not that great. It's empty. That's what the end is going to be for all of us, unless we find our joy and satisfaction in God alone, in God alone. He laments over his covetous people. Second, God laments over self-indulgent people, indulgent people, verses 11 through 17. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. Now fill with the Holy Spirit. They have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. Therefore, first set. My people go into exile for lack of knowledge. They, their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched and thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and, and opened its mouth beyond measure and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down and revelers and, and he who exalts in her, man is humbled. Each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs glaze, graze, excuse me, as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. People rising up in the, in the morning, and the only thing they're searching after is strong drink. It's not only the fact that they're drinking in of itself, which is condemned here, but the depravity of wasted time from morning to night. Those condemned rise up early. They waste their time. They, they don't glorify God in their daily chores, in their daily work. Whether it's the stay-at-home mom or whether it's the, the uh, price shop or the brain surgeon. We've all been called to this earth to give glory to God and to bring Him honor and glory. And all that we do, the Bible says, bring Him glory and honor. They don't do that. They don't do that in their daily work. They gratify themselves with strong drink and so render themselves really unfit to do the work of God. And unfortunately, look at verse 12. The parting goes into the night, man. The band is jamming. But their intoxicated behavior is dull their observation. They don't even know what's going on in the world. They do not regard, verse 12b, they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. God's not condemning all drinking and some of us can't drink. Or music, what he's saying is drunkenness and, and musical instruments and drunken carousing has really, uh, as we could say, ha- has really drowned the voice of God. He's not opposed to parties and celebrations and joy and physical pleasures. There'll be a, a banquet for the people when we get to chapter 25. In the New Testament, there's going to be a wedding feast of the Lamb. Isaiah is saying you're partying and your excessive drinking has consumed you and that's all that matters in your life. You wake up and you go to sleep thinking the same thing. 
Instead of paying attention to what God was doing, they're blinded by the things of God. And we get to 13 and 14, we see that first set of therefores, a description of the consequences. And the result of driving other people off their land and living only for pleasure is that God would drive their, his people off of their land into exile. Verse 13. They won't enjoy the land. And now this is going to happen. They're going to go to exile. We've talked about this before permanently uh, in a hundred or so years. But the Assyrian army was on their coattails. They were going to go into exile. They're also going to be threatened with exile. Instead, though, look what it says. Instead of pleasure seekers opening their throats, drinking their wine and strong drink, Sheol, the place of the dead, will open her throat and she will drink of the pleasure seekers. When people pursue the possession of more and more things, more and more property, more and more money, they wind up losing it and going into exile. Really what that shows us, as you see here, look at verse, um, let me see, where are we? Um, they don't even, they have no knowledge. Verse 13, they're honored men in a multi-parched thirst. No, excuse me, in the beginning of verse 13. They go into exile, exile for lack of knowledge. In other words, they don't even recognize the grace of God. They don't even recognize what time it is. We've been there, right? We find ourselves in places we thought, really, how did I get here? But yet God was saying and speaking to us all along the way. They received the grace of God in vain. And as man is humbled... From his pride, verse 15, verse 16, God is exalted. He's exalted in justice. He's the holy God who shows himself holy in justice, moral perfection. His exaltation is simply a display of who he is in all his character. Holiness exerted in self, itself in righteousness. Um, Dr. Gary Smith, the New American Commentary, says this, and he, and, and, and he says he explains this. I'm not sure I want to share this with you, but he also asks a really good question. We talk about God exalting himself in holiness and righteousness. Where there is no justice, he brings justice. He says this. God's holiness describes his glorious divinity and the justice with which he rules the world and deals with mankind. Although he does allow even his own people to suffer terribly because of their sin, his ultimate goal is to use every providential act, all that he's doing in the world, to cause his holiness to infiltrate all of creation. This happens in judgment and grace. Ultimately, he says, God, who will always be holy, will finally be seen as holy. We'll see that in Isaiah 6 too. In the end of the world, we'll all be holy too. The world will be holy too. Then he asks this. Is it better to experience question for us is it better to experience God's holy judgment or join those righteous people who glorify his name end quote I want to glorify his name I want to glorify his name third God laments over his unbelieving people verse 18 and 19 woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood Draw sin as with cart ropes. Who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. And let it come that we may know it. Israel is not only sinning, they're deliberately falling into sin. They're pursuing sin. Even worse, they're, 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 they're baiting God. They're attempting him to show up. They're like, yeah, okay, he'll punish us. And their ties to sin, you can see Isaiah in beautiful imagery, are cords, like the cords that people use to lead animals and cart ropes that are really strong. And, he, and he's painting this picture of these animals and these carts that are, that are, that are, that are moving and laboriously uh, uh, pulling things along. But he says, you know, replace that thought, and, and that's what the men are doing, Right? They're, they're striving, they're, they're tugging, they're yoked, they're hitched, and they're pulling their sin. It's not just simply doing it. The pulling of it is to show us their desire is to follow and to carry on in their sin. And then they challenge God. Do something. Verse 19. Instead of being convicted about their sin, 
repenting, they, they, they mock the Holy One. They're like, listen, if you exist, show yourself. That's what it means in verse 19. <laughs> Isaiah must be, look, I just told you what's going to happen. Because of your sin, death is coming. But okay, you want to taunt the living God, expect discipline. They're in a state of denial. They're in a state of defiance as they taunt God. It's blasphemous. Blasphemous. And you know what? Sometimes, maybe you're here this morning and you think, you know, where's God? The world sees, I get up in the morning, things go on on just like they always have been. They said the same thing to Peter in his day. Peter said, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. He's talking about judgment. But is patient toward you. God is patient toward you this morning. God is patient toward me. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. It's a warning. It's a warning. Number four, God laments over his deceived people. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, if you're anything like me, I read that verse and I'm thinking, welcome to America. That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) You know, try standing on moral biblical principles and precepts and you'll be scorned, mocked, ridiculed, and try very hard to be silenced. One way or the other. Calling out as we have alpha pregnancy and calling out about the unborn, the killing of our children in the womb. Or try holding to biblical marriage of one man and one woman. You'll be, you'll be labeled as, as a hater. You'll be maligned. Standing firm on righteous principles is portrayed in our culture as extreme. Without divine standards of God, many things can be reinterpreted. You could take good and, and turn it into evil and evil to good without, a, without any problem at all. You could, you could take a behavior and you could say, look, what you're doing is wrong. Don't you tell me that it's wrong. You, get, you know what? The person's suffering. You know what? Let's just kill that person. It's, it's, it's kind to do that. Really? Without the absolute standard of divine justice, deceived and deceptive human reasoning and unrestrained passion can rationalize and justify almost anything. We're seeing it over and over. Especially when the whole point of everything and what I do and what's right and wrong, what's good and what's evil is dependent on me, right? One commentator says, when sweet and bitter, light and darkness and good and evil are relative valued basis on wishes, whims, and selfish ends, righteous and justice does not exist, end quote. Now, whenever we talk about things of that, of our culture, what's going on, even with the people that are leading our country, let, let me just say two quick things, Okay. I think it's important. Number one, we, the people of God, must stand on biblical truth. We have to, number one, be faithful to God first, not man. That's simple. We don't get our cues. We don't get our, our, uh, uh, what's right and wrong of good and evil, light and darkness from the culture, from society, from the government. We must continue to have a worldview that comes from scripture, a biblical worldview, and in light, and live in light of, of, of the Lord's unchangeable character, his unchangeable word that's been given to us in his revelation to us. Stand on biblical truth, that's number one. Number two, just as important, you must always remember that our redemption and our renewal and our salvation is solely a matter of grace, Okay? But for the grace of God go I. Therefore, arrogance and pompous attitudes are completely unwarranted. Righteous anger, I get it. I'm there, I'm with you. But hate, foul, and offensive language is no place with the people of God. Speaking about the people of God, who is Isaiah primarily talking to? The people of God. It is one thing to call out Those who say evil is good, good is evil, dark is light, and light is dark in our country. It's altogether different when you call someone out who calls himself a Christian. Followers of Christ. Judgment will come to the churches. 
ours included, if we go this direction, where we say all that God has said, all that the churches have interpreted for thousands of years is no longer sin. We decided that. What was previously declared to be wrong and sinful is actually right, and what we considered right was now actually wrong. The bottom line is this. Unless the authority comes from the word of God and God himself, the authority for moral behavior goes beyond ourselves, resting again in the will and the word of God, wrong quickly will become right and right quickly become wrong. Standing for sexual purity, calling things like homosexual behavior sinful, has now become, even in churches, hate speech or fear. Marital faithfulness has become a cliché. You only go in the car with just your wife, right? And they say that to the vice president. It's ridiculous, really? Gender deception is increasingly becoming more and more common. More and more churches, including ours, must humbly, I get it, by grace, but confidently reaffirm and strengthen our commitment to the authority of God's word. It's going to get bad. If we compromise, we've lost the reason to exist. If we compromise with assault that has been given to us to spread, we'll become saltlessness, and we deserve what Jesus said, no longer good for anything but thrown and trampled. The unbelieving people, the deceived people, and the prideful people, verse 21. Woe to those who are heroes of drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his rights. I'm sorry, verse 21. Let me push this back. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. That's better. And what you see is just from 20 to 21. You have those who, who say evil is good, good is evil, light is dark, and dark is light. Why? Because they're wise in their own eyes. They're not going to listen to anyone else. They don't need divine law. They don't need, they're going to be the judge of their own life. They're going to do whatever they want. They think they know what's best. And their pride and their egotism allows them to think, look, I'm smart enough to get out of this. I'm smart enough to figure things out. I don't need to be dependent on God, his word, his people. I'm just going to do this myself. Let's keep moving. The unjust people, lastly, verses 22 through 25. Woe to those who are heroes drinking wine, valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, the second set of therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust and they, for they, have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against who? His people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpse were as refuse in the midst of streets. For all this, his anger was not turned away and his hand is stretched out. Isaiah begins his woe with people grabbing property. Now he ends it with grabbing money. And he says, Isaiah, in a sarcastic way, y'all famous, y'all valiant, y'all heroes. Guess what? It's all about what you're drinking. The partying, the leading uh, of just pursuing strong drink. And now there is social oppression. And I will tell you, if you want to be your own wise in your own eyes, if you want to call evil good, good evil, if you want to oppress people, take control over people, the outcome is going to be just what it says here. We see it all over the place. There's therefore, the fiery indignation. And look at the reason, verse 24. They rejected the law of the Lord, the word of God. And it's rather terrifying if you read that. Maybe you've never read the Old Testament before. Like, there's corpses, the ground shaking, there's corpses filling the streets. God is seen as this consuming fire. A disease that decimates plants. Verse 24, the tongue of fire devours the stubble. Grass sinks down in the flames. You see that. And then verse 25, we conclude this section. God's hand is stretched out against his people. Notice that. His hand is accomplishing his purposes, the therefores. And God's hand is stretched out. His anger and his judgment is stretched out. He will strike them with his hand. 
And hopefully, prayerfully, God's people recognize that it's a fearful thing to be, to be the object of the outstretched hand and anger of the judgment of Almighty God. That's how this ends. But stay with me. Lastly, the whistle of God. Verse 26. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumble, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, their bows bent, their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like whirlwind, they roaring like lions, like young lions. They roar, they growl and seize the prey, they carry it off. Verse 30, they will growl over it on that day. They have exiled like the growling of sea. And lastly, he says this, and if one looks to the land as they're being carried away from the nations... What they see, darkness and distress and the light that was on the land is darkened by its clouds. Now again, we don't know, is this Babylon when they come and destroy Jerusalem or possibly in 701 BC when the Assyrian army marches on Jerusalem but doesn't stay there, God gives them reprieve, we're not sure. But the point is this, God is the God of not just the nation of Israel. God is the God of all nations. And now he is calling them and preparing them by raising a signal, a flag, and by whistling when he's ready to bring them from afar. And it's clear that God's going to judge his people by using these foreign nations, these Gentile nations. They're, they're highly skilled. Read the text. None weary. None, there's, there's not a waistband is loose. Arrows are sharp. Man, they're highly skilled. They're equipped. In the end, it would be like a roaring lion. And if one happens to look back at Jerusalem, notice with me, looks back at Jerusalem, what are they going to see? They're going to see darkness. They're going to see distress over the land. And the light on the land is going to be covered, extinguished by dark clouds. What a sight. The anger and the just judgment of God on sinners and rebels. Now I want to conclude it this way. Track with me a few more minutes. We're no different than the people of Judah. We're no different and deserve no other outcome than the people of Jerusalem. We deserve the outstretched hand of God's anger, judgment, and wrath. But in the gospel according to Mark chapter 15, we read that Jesus was scourged, whipped, flogged, beaten, and led out to a hill called Calvary. His hands were outstretched and nailed to a wooden crossbeam with large eight-inch wrought iron nails as they crucified his hands outstretched. And in the middle of the day, Mark says, around at 3 o'clock p.m., complete darkness came over the land until 6 p.m. And this darkness that came over the land is a picture of judgment. And for three hours on the cross, hands stretched out, Jesus Christ absorbs our judgment. The Father's wrath, his just wrath for our sins. It was then that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Light evaporated from the land so that just as God turned away from his son, he will not allow you and I to see the sacrifice of his only son as the wretched, putrid sins of his people were laid on him. He turned away and he darkened the land. It was then that all our sinful covetousness, self-indulgement, unbelief, deception, prideful and unjust behavior were poured out on the spotless Son of God. That's God's grace. That's the work of God. And that's the work that can transform the heart. The gospel, the, the sole work of God by His grace redeems, rescues, and saves sinners. Do you know that Jesus used the same language of vineyards and vines to refer to himself. He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. We could say a lot about what it means to abide. Sinclair Ferguson says, abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds. Direct our wills and transform what? Our affections. I think that's good. 
But let me conclude by saying this. According to Isaiah 5, abiding in the vine and producing good fruit begins with, listen, recognizing the grace of God. Rehearsing over and over the grace of God. Cherishing regularly the grace of God. Delighting always in the grace of God in the gospel. So as we look at these sins in Isaiah 5 and our hearts say, yes, that's me, that's me, must me. We look to the cross of Christ, the one who paid the price for our sins, the one who judged and punished in our place, the one who gave us his righteousness so that through the empty tomb, the power of his spirit, we may produce Christ-exalting, God-glorifying fruit that will last forever. Allow the gospel, God's unearned love and salvation, a salvation that rescued and, and redeemed you from the just holy wrath of God to permeate your heart, your mind, your thoughts, your will, your actions, every area of your life. For when Jesus says, I am the vine, he is saying, listen, I'm replacing all human failure. I'm the one who bears fruit. Just abide in me. Rest in me. Rest in the gospel. Have you rested in the gospel? Have you seen the really wretched bad news, but the wonderful, glorious good news? Are you pressing that truth in your heart so that when we live our lives and we're bearing fruit, we're saying, this ain't me, this is all the Lord. That, that I can walk in the power of his Holy Spirit, not being judged for my sin because my sin's already been judged. Walk in the grace of God, producing the work, the fruit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. God glorifying, Christ exalting, fruit. It's all about him. Rest in the gospel. Father, thank you for this passage, Lord. We just pray that it will be a passage that will, 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 lots of woes, Lord, but we know you are good and we, and we recognize that judgment has come on a hill. Darkness has come. It's called Golgotha Calvary. And Lord, we rest in the finished work of Jesus, knowing that he died for all our sins, past, present, and future. Help us, Lord, to walk in the joy of the Lord and be filled with his spirit, knowing that we are uh, yours. And Lord, that you chastise and love your children, but Lord, you fill us with your grace and mercy. And Lord, that to get together as your children, we will bear good fruit for your glory, not for our own fame, not for our own uh, uh, glory, Lord, but for yours and yours alone. So, Lord, you know each one here, you know our hearts, you know where we're at, you know where we need to be, Lord, you know where you're moving us to be, Lord. We just pray that your grace would be the, the, the motivator uh, to help us to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you. It is by grace through faith alone we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.